feel like Gordon Bombay would have taken his career to even further heights. Everything's flashy, everything's cocaine, everything's fun. Open wide for some soccer! I don't care what you think about, what your personal thoughts are at home. I care that you hate the Cowboys. Call this college rule! Welcome back to the Sports Experience Podcast. I'm Chris with Dom. We got our special guest here today. Just before we get into that, though, please get on our YouTubes, Instagrams, all of our social medias. We just finished a block on the realest real sports you can get out there wrestling check that one out and then we're gonna get right back on the diamond dom who do we have with us today so today we have a very special guest we have one of my oldest and dearest friends from tucson arizona a giant baseball and sports enthusiast but specifically baseball there is nobody who knows baseball more than me i would say in tucson like you think i'm a nerd going back to these episodes (laughs) this guy takes the absolute cake Seriously, one of my best friends, uh, veteran of Camp Student Radio at the U of A as well, and the biggest Red Sox fan I've ever met. Give it up for Dave Davis, everybody. Chris, Nick, I'd like to thank both of you for uh, inviting me uh, to the show and for allowing me to, to pick this topic. Uh, and for those of you uh, who are regular uh, watchers of this show, if you're a Yankee fan, you're probably not going to enjoy it. <laughs> but if you're a baseball fan in general, you probably should. We're going to be looking at the at the original golden age of the of Red Sox baseball, the 1910s, uh, a team that won four titles in seven years, produced several Hall of Famers, including one of the greatest of all time in Tris Speaker. And we are going to do quite a bit about Tris, I'm sure, over over the next uh, you know half hour to an hour. Uh, but I am I'm so happy to be here, and uh, I am looking forward to this and yeah. the uh, golden outfield. That's yeah, the uh, golden outfield. Yeah. That's right. I'm excited. I'll, I'll say this, Dave. Uh, you definitely know Dom because you called him Nick, and I've only heard people from his family call him that, it's, which is such a real – where he's just like everyone at home is probably like – the four people at home are probably like, Nick, who the hell is Nick? <laughs> it's I love probably it. the I, people who know me is Nick. Who are, that too. You that's, know yeah, they're they're like, yeah. well, oh, they called him Nick. You're right. You're our, right. They were right on it. Our mutual friend Matt introduced me to him, and he introduced him to me as Nick. Yep. And – we don't need to talk about the first time that we actually met each other. Yeah. Uh, that was an interesting night. Uh, we can discuss that in private. Uh, uh, there, there, it, was at a, it was at a concert and something weird happened to me that night. But uh, It was Dio before he died. Yeah. That's what it was. Uh, Sa- Sabbath with Dio. Sabbath with Dio. Yes. That's right. Yes. yes. He got cursed. I know. I know what he does with that hand. <laughs> All right. So jump in. We're going to do a little kind of a backstory. Dave has all sorts of awesome information on basically the creation of the Red Sox to where we get to this point in the creation of the American League. So, Dave, take us away, buddy. Well, when the Red Sox were founded, they were not founded as, as the Boston Red Sox. They were founded as the Boston Americans. A man named Charles W. Summers, uh, who back in the day, he was actually called the good angel of the American League, uh, uh, bought the franchise after it had been moved from Buffalo. Yeah. Now, Summers is a critical person in the development of the American League because he was actually the principal financier of the American League. He was a coal baron, and by the age of 31 in 1899, he was already worth more than a million dollars. Ultimately, he helped found the Indians, the Philadelphia A's. Yes, believe it or not, folks, the A's actually started in Philadelphia. They play in all sorts of cities now. Yes, yes. They're in Vegas. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, The White Sox and the Red Sox. Uh, from 1901 to 1904, he he loaned a million dollars or more, or spent more than a million, to other AL owners so that they could actually vie against the National League and, and bring over National League stars. And Summers was actually the man who brought Cy Young and Jimmy Collins. For those of you who don't know who Jimmy Collins is, uh, he became a Hall of Fame third baseman for the Red Sox. Uh, and he was a National League star, actually, with the with the with the Boston Braves. And they won the World Series in 1903 with Young and Collins, and then they won the AL pennant in 1904. But we didn't have a World Series. No, not because there's a strike. Because Chris, baseball loves strikes. Thank you for setting that up. Because <laughs> Summers actually, he also he also owned the Cleveland Indians at the time, or he was a minor, or he was a part owner. Now. That created some complications with the with Ban Johnson and the other AL owners. Well. Summers sold the team to a man named Henry Kalia uh, in January of 1902. Now, Sporting Life, at, uh, uh, years later, called uh, Kalia the godfather of the American League. He was a lawyer from the univer- who graduated with a law degree from the University of Michigan. He was the one who actually drew up the Articles of Incorporation for the White Sox and for the New York Highlanders, which became the Yankees. Yep. And he actually secured funding for the Highlanders to get them off and running. 
Now, a couple of the big things in, ma in Major League Baseball history that, that uh, Henry was so vital for. He was actually instrumental in getting the national agreement that finally established peace between the American and National Leagues and established the American League as a true professional Major League Baseball League. And then uh, in, in the uh, uh, offseason of 1902 going into to the 1903 season, he worked tirelessly with National League owners to create the World Series. Which so the reason dope. we have the World Series <laughs> is because of Henry Kalia. Uh, uh, he had originally been uh, uh, the owner of the Milwaukee Brewers. For those of you who do not know, <laughs> the St. Louis Browns, a.k.a. the Baltimore Orioles, did not start in St. Louis. They actually were originally the Milwaukee Brewers. Uh, but at the end of the 1901 season, Dan Johnson and the other American League owners wanted the team moved to St. Louis. Over the objections of the ownership. I was going to say, well, yeah, because the Cardinals were there and you need to put an AL. Because that's when we had two cities, two teams, like we talked about in a couple of our other episodes. Yep. Yeah. yeah, White Sox, uh, uh, now three teams in New York at this Philadelphia, point. But Boston. they wanted direct competition. Yep. That's, yeah. what yeah. they were, that's what they were saying. Yep. They were like, we don't care if you want to move there. We need you to move there. <laughs> well, as a result, Henry Kalia and his brother sold the Brewers and they bought the Boston Americans for 60000 bucks. Not bad. Now, Khalil was actually instrumental in, in organizing the team in, that won the 1903 pennant and World Series and the 1904 pennant. Now, the reason we, don't have, we didn't have a World Series in 1904 was because John McGraw was just adamantly opposed to playing the American League champions. And when uh, the Giants won the National League pennant, McGraw famously said, well, the Giants are the National League champs, which means we're the world champs. Well, that they put, and they still have a, uh, they still have a flag over there at Pac Bell or whatever the hell they're calling it now yeah, in well, San Francisco. Yeah, you know, and in Boston, you know, when they only when, have the pennant flag. when we only have the yeah when 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 Boston wins the pennant, we have the blue pennant flag, and in 1904 we have the blue pennant flag. Now, if I was the owner of the Red Sox, <laughs> I would change the color to red, and I would say, no, no, we're the world champions because the Giants forfeited by not by refusing to play us, but. That's and then just me. We never lost another World Series. Oh, wait. We did it 90 <laughs> years later. <laughs> now, in, in 1904, uh, uh, Khalil uh, sold the team to Charles Taylor, who was a Civil War general, but at the time, he was the owner of the Boston Globe. Now, the Taylor family actually owned the Globe from 1873 until 1971 when they sold it to the New York Times, but the Taylor family continued to be the publishers of the Boston Globe until 1899. Did he have a cool Civil War beard? I never saw a picture of him. I did see a picture of his son, John. Okay. And, and Charles made John the president of the team. Did he really? In, in no small part because he didn't want John at the newspaper. <laughs> he was like, well, my boy needs to do something, so we'll make Here's him. Here's a ball club. Yeah, so we'll make him the president of the ball club. That's like, oh my God, that's the biggest, like, nepotism. <laughs> like, oh, so good. Don't, don't be screwing this up, yeah. John. This is America. <laughs> Isn't that normal? Hasn't that always been the case? I'm sorry. I thought this was America. Now go on the Red Sox. Yeah. yeah. Now, Charles, now, John Taylor is actually instrumental in, in creating the club that mm -hmm. ultimately became the dynasty of the 1910s. But it took a little bit of time. Now, they had that gap, kind of those, yeah. I won't say necessarily down years. Oh, no, 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 no. They, they had one year where they went 47 oh, like and 105. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. But awful. They, they had some astute scouting people, particularly ones going to the West Coast, like we'll discuss oh, with the outfield. Believe it or not. John Taylor was actually one of those was one of those scouts. Was he really? Yeah, oh yeah, he's actually <laughs> the one. He's actually the one that actually signed uh, Harry Hooper. But in, that, get to that in a second. Yeah. Couple of the reasons why John Taylor's ownership of the Red Sox was so important. First and foremost, he's the one that actually changed the name from the Americans to the Red Sox. And the reason why he did it was because in the off season, at the end of the 1907 season, the Boston Braves dropped their colors. They dropped the red colors that they were using, and so Taylor decided to pick it up. Now, the Braves dropped their red because they were afraid that the red dye used in the socks was, could actually cause an infection if a player was spiked. Oh. I love early 20th century <laughs> medical stuff. That's so yeah. oh. Now, the other, the other reason You know what why, happens with red dye. Come yeah, on, yeah. boys. Yeah. No, no, the, uh, it all reminds me of a Seinfeld with the cotton uniforms. Like, yep. There goes Don Mattingly. <laughs> red dye number five. Well, the other reason why he picked the name Red Sox was because he was a newspaper guy, and red stockings took up too much <laughs> width in the newspaper column. Oh, yeah. And so he said, well, red. Sox, S-O-X. I meant to ask Dave, weren't the Reds the Red Stockings at one point, too? Or is yeah. that like way before that? Uh, that Probably was about like, 1873. I was going to say like in the Civil War era yeah. where they're playing, you know? Like. Yeah, yeah. Now, a couple other things happened in that 1907 season that John Taylor 
really did. He had three player acquisitions. Yes. Trish Speaker, Smokey Joe about. Wood, and Ray Collins. And all three of those guys would ultimately be critical parts of their 1912 World Championship. I mean, those are legends right there. But they're legends people don't know about. Yep. You know, like, I mean, in today's, unless you're like a hardcore Red Sox fan, but when you look in the annals of baseball history, you're like, that guy picked up all those guys? Yeah. (laughs) Well, then the next year, he added, he went out to the West Coast, and he signed Mm -hmm. Harry Hooper to a $2,800 a year contract. Hooper ultimately. Hooper actually was a a, a graduate in civil engineering from in St. A, Mary's. Exactly, and he was. They were saying like when he was playing in the PCL, he was like, I don't know, I think I'll just stay here and then work on engineering. And he's like, No, here is all of this money. You're coming with me. Yep. And then uh, uh, the next year, uh, they he signed Duffy Lewis out of the same school. Out of the same school. Yes. Now Taylor is also the man who built Fenway Park. Which is odd, because yeah, when I was reading, I was like, what is this other place they're referring to? The and Huntington then, Avenue grounds. Yes, exactly. Yes. The Huntington Avenue grounds was, were, was the, uh, the Boston Americans' original ballpark. It was literally practically across the street from where the Boston Braves played. Uh, the dimensions were huge. Yeah. And believe it or not, they actually had a tool shed out in center field <laughs> that That's was actually so in play. It was in play. I mean, go figure. What yeah. happened to the center fielder? Oh, he's out there whacking off yeah. in the tool <laughs> shed. Yeah. Not only that, but there were patches of sand in the outfield where grass wouldn't grow. So Taylor oh. realized, you know, look, you know, we need another ballpark. So Taylor and his father were also owners of Fenway Realty Company. Now, Taylor bought the land where Fenway now sits, and he paid $675,000 to build the park. Now... Today, in today's age... I was going to say, what the hell? Yeah, well, <laughs> Fenway started... They started construction literally days after the 1911 season ended. And they started in... That's insane. How did they build it that fast? Uh, Taylor wanted it built and open and ready in time for opening day. Now, it was supposed to have an upper deck. Yeah. But they couldn't get the upper deck built in time for opening day in April of 1912. They didn't actually build the upper deck until 1946. <laughs> I had read they built, and people were saying that's part of the curse that they built it. The, it finished the sa- open the same week as the Titanic sunk. Yep, which is like what? yeah, actually opening day was the day the Titanic was sank. it really? Yeah, oh the Titanic man, sank early that morning. Yeah, now the original the, the original capacity of Fenway was about twenty seven thousand, which was actually three times larger than the Huntington Avenue grounds. Now. We all know today that Fenway is, is, by capacity, the fifth smallest in baseball. But when it opened, it was one of the biggest parks in, in baseball. It was huge. Yeah. yeah. Well, and that was the thing in the 70s when you started seeing those multi-purpose cookie cutters that are like 60,000, 70,000. That was like when Camden Yards got built. I remember in the early 90s, they finally started building like baseball parks again. Those like retro type of deals. It's, I think, hard for us to think about the fact that there was a time when Fenway was brand new. And when it was new, it was actually revolutionary in stadium design and construction. It was, one of the, it was the first ballpark built of steel and concrete. That's amazing. The, uh, 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 the, the, the third baseline actually goes due north. Uh, and it was the first stadium to have a parking lot outside the outfield. For those new automobiles. Yeah, yeah seriously. Brand spanking. Oh, this is the new Packard we've been hearing so much about. Now... They also they actually moved the sod, the infield sod, from the old Huntington Avenue yeah. grounds to Fenway. That's cool. Uh, oh, shoot. I didn't know that. That's awesome. Now, last night when I was actually finalizing some research, uh, in Boston, on the campus of Northeastern University, they, still, they have a, uh, uh, not a statue, but a, a, a monument to where the original home plate of the Huntington Avenue grounds were, and 60 feet, 6 inches away is a statue of Cy Young and where the pitching mound would have been. That's cool. That is awesome. That's Boston for you. I was gonna, yeah. that's, it's always a baseball town. Now, the original, uh, you could actually buy a, a set of, of four box seat tickets in 1912 for 77 home games for $12.50 each. So 50 bucks. <laughs> 50. Yep. God. Yep. The, uh, uh, they actually had five tiers of ticket pricing. Box seats, a buck fifty. Could you imagine going to Fenway today and paying a dollar fifty for a box seat? <laughs> I'm sure you would have to be like, I don't know. I don't, I, I don't know how you can afford that. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, uh, 
Hooper actually thought that uh, 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 Taylor actually had told Hooper, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll let you help design the place. Oh, because, yeah, he was an engineer. He was a civil engineer. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Couldn't find anything on whether or not Harry actually participated in, in the, uh, the, the drafting of the, of the architectural plans. Watch it be like he's the one because he played in right field. He's like, no, 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 put that monster there in yep, left field. Yep. Like, we'll, yep. we'll just do that. Uh, now, remember, the original left field at Fenway did not have the green monster. No. It did have a 25-foot-high wall, but equally weird. They oh, had the a six-foot incline yeah. leading up to the about. Yeah. cliff. Yeah, a yep. cliff. It became known as, as Duffy's Cliff yep. after Duffy Lewis. The, uh, uh, the, very first ball game, the very first ball game at Fenway, uh, aside from the two exhibition games that they played, one against Harvard and one, I think, against uh, like UMass, I think. Uh, the, Fenway opened April 12, 1912. Boston prevailed over the Yankees 7-6 to six in the 11th inning on a game-winning single by Tris Speaker. Can't, can't take that away, Yankees fans. You can't take that away. Steve Yerkes of the Red Sox, Yerkes, had five hits that game. Harry Hooper Jeez. became the very first Red Sox to to at bat to have an at bat at Fenway. Oh, cool! Something appropriate about that, and folks, you might because he batted leadoff. <laughs> he, yeah, he was the leadoff hitter. And for those of you who don't know, and Harry Hooper did become an inductee to the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame, and he's also obviously an inductee to the Red Sox Hall of Fame as well. The guy became a god and beloved in Boston. But this is—it's the golden outfield. I mean, uh, yep. the, the, he's not just the only one. <laughs> yeah. And beginning in 1910, with with the arrival of Duffy Lewis, that is when we get what became known as the golden outfield, one of the go- greatest defensive outfields in the history of baseball. And they all brought something different, uh, and not even just. Uh, in the field, but hitting as well. They were all a little bit, you know, they all added something to the lineup that was different and awesome. Ty Cobb and Babe Ruth both thought that the that the golden outfield was the greatest defensive outfield that they had ever seen. Uh, the fame uh, and future Hall of Fame uh, sports writer Grantlin Rice. Uh, uh, this is a great quote. I think I know what one you're going to talk about. Yes, it's I, perfect. I, uh, uh, they, the Golden Outfield, could track down a ball in another country if they had to do so. Uh, he said. He also said, you ran at them at your own peril. Uh, Detroit Tiger shortstop Donnie Bush at the time said Speaker could throw a strike over home plate from anywhere in the outfield. And to let you people know just how truly gifted these outfielders were. Trish Speaker to this day has the record for most outfield assists by a center field, not just by a center fielder, but by an outfielder. He had 100 and more, about 170 more outfield assist, center field assists than Ty Cobb. He's also the all-time uh, leader in double plays by an outfielder, which is about 100, I think 149, which is two times more than the next guy. Harry Hooper is still the all-time leader for, in assists by a right fielder, even more than Roberto Clemente, who is number two on the all-time <laughs> list. And Duffy Lewis, third all-time <laughs> in assists by a left fielder. Even had more assists than than Carl Yastrzemski. That's awesome. Something. But I mean, that was that was the cool. Well, one stat about uh, speaker that I enjoyed was the unassisted double plays from center field. Well, and they said because he played so shallow. Yeah. And they and the thing that I I thought was so ridiculous was they were just like they covered so <laughs> much ground together, and they also played so well together that, and I'm sure we're going to get into it that like. A couple of them really did not like each other. Oh, but, yes. Which is such a it's such a pro baseball thing, especially of this era of these guys being like, no, 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 we're gonna, I'm gonna play as hard as I can for you, but off this, I, I really do not like you. It's like if you died tomorrow, I'd be sad because we're going to allow a lot of exactly doubles. <laughs> not, a lot of yes, doubles. Exactly. Not that you're a person, but we're going to allow a lot. Of, and they, uh, I think it was either Hooper or Lewis who was like, oh no, Speaker's the bell cow. Like, we position yep. ourselves yep. That, according yep. to where yep. he that is. Was, that, was, that was Duffy who said yeah. that. Uh, another sports writer at the time said that the golden outfield covered the outfield like a carpet. Yep. Uh, <laughs> but they this is because it was kind of like the Duffy and and against speaker because it, and I saw this it was like there was like religious undertone. Oh, we, we're will gonna, we, like we will get to I that. I know, I know, it, but it, it it makes it so much sense though that they were just like no, no, no. Speaker literally is. 
like we're just going to follow where he's going to set up and then we're going to set up accordingly because we want to just blanket this outfield and with the when you look at just the amount of assists they had as an outfield you're like oh yeah that like you might as well just go for grounders all day and mind you this is the dead ball era they're playing yes. too and they're getting all these assists when like guys aren't going yard well, like they are and, 10 and years you, later and you also have to remember this the original center field at Fenway was 468 feet. And speakers lined up on his second base. The, yes, <laughs> that's the right field, the right field power alley was 402. I mean, because remember, back then they didn't have the bullpens out in the. You're outfield. right. They're oh, probably yeah. throwing on the side yeah. there, like yeah. at Wrigley. Yeah. Oh, now, my God. Now, I'm lucky when, when my grandpa John was alive, my, my mom's dad. Now, Gramps was born in 1911, and he grew up a Tiger fan. Now, he never saw a speaker play for the Red Sox. But he did see Speaker play for Cleveland. And I remember asking him one time, how good was he? And, and he told me, he goes, kid. He called all of his grandkids kid. Didn't matter which one of us it was. It was always kid. And his daughters were always sis. Go figure on that one. But he goes, you have no idea. He goes, Couldn't be- no one, none of us could believe just how shallow he would play. But yet he could still track down any ball hit over his head. And Speaker one time famously said... You know, there, there are folks that say that, the, the, that in order to, to, to catch a ball, you, you, have to, you have to take off at the, at the crack of the bat. He goes, uh-uh. He goes, in order to get a ball, you got to take off before you hear the sound. And I was that's like, amazing. I'm like, that's actually pretty cool. But you know what, what I found was, like we had mentioned before, that he would turn double plays, basically being a fifth infielder, like the shortstop or second baseman would flip him the ball. But I had read something where he was describing why he played so shallow. And he was like, you know, most of the balls that are hit fall in front of me and I'm fast enough to get back there, but like, I'm not letting anything go in front of me. And I'm like in the dead ball, like with the laces not wound as tight. That's freaking like, he's on another level of just like playing that position for that era of sports strategy where he's just like, no, no, the majority of the balls even if they're hit pure, are going to be in this area. So they're not going to, especially with it going so far back, it's like, well, they're not going to be home runs if they actually go over my head. It's going to be, you know, a a triple or a double. But it's still like, it's such an interesting thing that I feel like not a lot of outfields in that time could even have done where they had to have three guys that were like on top of their game. Well, and this is the other thing is that Speaker and Hooper – had great speed, yeah. Because even to this day, and you know, Trish Speaker hasn't played for the Red Sox since 1915, and Harry Hooper hasn't played for them since 1920. They are still number one and number two on the all-time stolen base but list for the Red Sox. It's funny you mentioned that, Dave, because when we did our Dom DiMaggio episode, he like led the AL in stolen bases one year with like 20, and we're like, what the? So I remember ta- talking to you about it, and you're like, oh yeah. That franchise, there's one thing they just don't do is steal bases. No, yeah. even and even during this period, when when you look at where they ranked in the AL uh, in stolen bases, it was always near the bottom, whether you know sixth or seventh or eighth, but they were always near the bottom. But Speaker one time famously said, "He goes, you never, lo- you never, you'll never lose a game if the ball get, if the ball lands in front of you. He goes, you'll lose if it gets over your head." And my Gramps was just, he goes, he, 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 to, to his dying day, he thought that speaker was one was, was probably the greatest defensive outfielder he ever seen. Uh, He thought he was better than Cobb. Uh, I asked him, well, what about Willie Mays? And, And he goes, he goes, Willie didn't play nearly as shallow. He goes, don't get me wrong. He goes, Mays was amazing, but. He goes, I mean, speaker was otherworldly. This is like Ken Griffey Jr. in the 19 aughts. Like that's, that's a level. And and we're not even talking about probably an, his his hitting. I mean, his amazing hitting that we'll get into as far as, uh, Oh yeah. As as, you know, they're putting the pieces together in the late 19 aughts. And once we hit 1910, 1911, now we start seeing the emergence of baseball's really their first dynasty. If you think about it. Yeah. Now we, we discussed this, uh, 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 weeks ago and that, and, and it was about what is baseball's first dynasty? You know, the Cubs won three straight national league pennants uh, in, in 1906, 07, 08, but they only won two world series. And then they won a whole bunch more over the next century, right? Yeah. 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 A lot. Yeah. 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 Some would uh, say the most. Now, 
the, the, the other team that I think could lay claim to being baseball's first rivalry would be the Philadelphia A's of the same decade. Because, because they won they, three in five three years, and five but years, they won four, four pennants, pennants in five years. Now, if they had beaten the Boston Braves in 1914 and, and won four and five, that would be a tall that would order. Be tall, but, but Boston, by winning four and seven, including three and four, like just like the uh, just like the, the the A's did, I'm going to give the nod to them. Plus, Boston became the first team ever to win four championships and the first team to win five. Well, when we talked about this in our Black Sox episode, this is in the long, long ago before the New York Highlanders slash Yankees were the premier team in baseball. Because in the 1910s, only three teams won pennants in the American League, none of which were the Yankees. Yeah, well, you see, Yankee fans. Uh... Uh, outside of my friend Kenny, who's the most atypical Yankee fan of all time, uh, Yankee fans tend to think that uh, the World Series only began in 1923 when when they won their first. And we'll get to that 1923 team. And we'll get to some later. ownership and yes. some Tris Speaker stuff as far as because uh, there were some interesting quotes I found out about his departure, and we had talked about how the fans felt about his departure. So uh... well, and there were there were some some interesting characters also in and uh, on that early Red Sox team. Uh, for example. Uh, pinch hitter uh, and defensive substitute Olaf Henriksen, who actually was pretty good with the bat. He is the fir- he is the first and only player ever born in Denmark, <laughs> ever to play in the to play in Major League Baseball. That's awesome. Yeah, uh, his teammates called him the Swede. You know, <laughs> they don't like, even. Get, that's they're, perfect. They're trying, they're, but they're, that's like an inside joke. Like yeah, they're insulting yeah, him. Yeah, like, yes. yeah, hey, yeah. Hey, Lego master. <laughs> like uh, a 1912 baseball card of Henriksen described him as quote. A Viking-descended outfielder. Oh, my God. Men so, of their time, Chris. That is so so much. Oh, the, after the 1912 World Series, and we, were, we, all, we will get to that World Series in, in a little bit, the New York World called him the conf, that confounded son of Thor. <laughs> Sports writing was just, it was a different level back then. Like, the, nicknames, everything. We've talked about that. Oh. God. The disrespect. The <laughs> yeah, just the level of like. I love it. We don't care. We're, it was more of like that. More of like, we're drinking all day. What's funny? <laughs> yes. You know what's funny? You know what's funny? <laughs> Danish people. Danish people. <laughs> <laughs> well, they, uh, uh, the, you know, from, 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 from really 1910 going into 1912, the one thing that the Red Sox had finally done was they had established a consistent lineup. Yeah, uh, Bill Kerrigan, who had actually been who spent his entire ten years in Major League Baseball with the Red Sox as a as a catcher, and then ultimately he managed the 1915 and 1916 teams. Player coach, yeah. Player coach, uh, Jake Stahl. Uh, he was actually amazingly Boston actually probably had more college graduates uh, uh, on their team than any other team in baseball. Stahl was their first baseman, the man, player manager in 1912, and he was a University of Illinois grad. Wow, uh, shoot. Yeah, uh, uh, Kerrigan actually went to Holy Cross. <laughs> Yeah, he was a Holy Cross grad. Uh, you had Heine Wagner uh, at shortstop. Now, Wagner uh, uh, was, was – they, they said this about Wagner, that, that he had uh, a really good arm, an accurate arm, but he, and he had good hands. But he also had really big feet, which actually he used to keep uh, – to, to, block, to block second base uh, you know, on, on oh, plays wow. and, and guys stealing the bag. And pick up the ladies too That's because right. you know it about big feet. Good shortstops. That's right. At, at third base, they had Larry Gardner, who ultimately was voted as one of the top 50 Vermont athletes of all time. But this was a guy who could contribute. He, would, he, who, he routinely hit nearly 300. He was a critical part of the infield. Uh, and, and, you know, Sox fans loved him. Well, I mean, he's a New England guy, too. I and mean, a New England guy, yeah. But that's what's cool is they're getting guys from everywhere. It's not, And that's what, like, old baseball barnstorming. Like, you just send the scouts on the trains, and you're like, well, who we got today here in Yuma, Arizona? <laughs> like, yeah, and, and uh, in 1911, the Sox picked up uh, 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 Buck O'Brien or Bucky O'Brien uh, and Hugh Bedient. Uh, and both those guys would actually play they would be. They'd have starring roles for the 1912 World Championship well, team. The 1912 World Series too was pretty yep. epic, and kind of the way that it ended and who they beat too. A little bit what for, but uh, well, before we get to the to the 1912 World Series, let's talk about the 1912 season. Well, and... actually, we do have another little change in ownership. Oh yes, okay, in 1911. yes, you're right. Okay, okay. Uh, in 1911, Taylor sold half the club to a guy named James McAleer for 170 thousand bucks. Now. 
McAleer is another actually important guy in the history of the American League. He was actually one of the founders of it. He, he played for the Cleveland Spiders with Cy Young. But then after, after the Spiders uh, imploded and were moved out of Cleveland, he became the player manager for the St. Louis Browns from 1901 to 1904. Uh, and then he became a, a, the player manager for the, for the Washington Senators for four years. Oh, wow. But he also then actually uh, 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 was, part, was part owner. Now... McAleer was one of the guys who who helped bring in who helped bring in uh, uh, Betty and Ann O'Brien and and a couple other guys uh, because he brought the money. Yeah, and he and and Taylor were the co-owners going into that nineteen twelve season. That's awesome. Like and fifty fifty owners. Yeah, and fifty fifty. Yeah. Yep, fifty fifty. You don't see that anymore in no. professional sports. I mean, it's either all or nothing, or like it just like little tiny yeah. bits and pieces. It's like I have controlling interest. Yeah, that's like thirty percent. Mm-hmm. Except McLear did not have controlling interest over the actual ballpark. That's right. Yeah, I remember Taylor, you telling me about that. Taylor leased had a had a had an eight year lease. Uh, where he and the, and the Taylor family got thirty thousand dollars a year from the Red Sox uh, that lasted until, excuse me, through the end of the nineteen nineteen season. Okay. But you know, at the end of nineteen eleven, the 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 Red Sox had finished had finished fourth. The year before, they had finished fifth, and so it seemed like, well, are we are we on the right track? Well, the answer to that was yes. Well, I because mean... because the three stars in the outfield, they weren't just offensive stars; they could hit. Well, nineteen twelve, Tris Speaker wins the MVP. What does he hit though, Dave? Three eighty-six. <laughs> Two hundred and twenty-two hits that season. That's amazing. Fifty-three doubles, twelve triples, ten homers, ninety ribble, ninety ribbies, fifty-two stolen bases. That year, Tris Speaker became the first guy in baseball history with fifty doubles and fifty stolen bases. You know what amazes me about that is when you look at these guys, particularly Speaker, to a lesser extent Hooper and then Lewis. He has an over one OPS, and this is the dead ball era. The amounts of extra base hits that he's collecting, uh, these guys are collecting, are insane. Well, that year in 1912, Speaker slugged 567. Yeah. That was the highest slugging percentage of the dead ball era uh, up until Ruth's 1919 season when Ruth had 29 homers. But in, in 1912, Speaker actually did have about 150 more at-bats than Ruth did in, in, in 1919. I don't, I don't know if you saw it, but one of the most fascinating things I found out is he was a natural right-handed like batter, thrower. He decided to teach himself how to hit and throw and use his left hand and become dominant with it after two bronco accidents in texas and i'm like that is some macho man randy savage shit chris i was just gonna say i saw that where it kind of confused me i was just like what the hell do they mean bronco accidents well like i I understand that he was riding broncos are we saying that it was an accident it was was... a white ford bronco that he was driving and you know what it wasn't two (laughs) i mean it wasn't one it was two now one of the amazing things about the fact that they actually won in 1912 was the fact that the club was had a schism in the clubhouse based on religion. Now, Nick and I, and I, you, you, you're a fan of the movie Major League, aren't you? Oh, of course. Okay, you remember the you remember the scene where where <laughs> Joe Boo? Yeah, where you know, are you trying to say that Jesus, Jesus Christ, Christ can't, can't hit, hit a curveball? Curve yeah, yeah, it's one of the greatest. Oh, give it a rest, Harris. Let's not start a holy war in the in the locker room. Well, that's exactly what Tris Speaker Don't did. Don't leave that rum sitting around with yeah. these guys. Well, well, and this this is what I wanted to bring up was he was he was drafted from an East Coast Protestant area, and then we see we see Hooper and Duffy get drafted from a West Coast Catholic, both from the same school. Obviously, yep. and then they come which is in, a Jesuit school. St. Mary's is a Jesuit school, yeah. and then they come in as almost like this preset groups, <laughs> like and major Bill, league reference is so perfect. And Bill Kerrigan, the catcher, was also Catholic. Holy Cross! Up your bucket, Martin now, Luther. <laughs> now, it, it, it turns out that in the 1911 season, Speaker went the whole year without talking to Hooper or to Lewis outside of like. Do actual ball field. Yeah, actual know. game. Yeah, yeah. You know, and sort of, you know, be like, that is I've got, amazing. I've got, I've got this one. That okay. is amazing. But, but yeah, in the clubhouse, uh-uh. And things got so bad that during the 1911 season, now you got to understand something about Speaker. He was regarded as a tough guy, as a brawler. He was not afraid to, you know, throw punches. Well, Bill Kerrigan had finally had enough. 
And apparently they got into a locker room brawl that a sports writer at the time said it was the clubhouse brawl to end all clubhouse brawls. <laughs> and the teammates, their teammates stayed out of it. And speaker years later said, yeah, um, it was the only fight that I think I ever lost. And, and, and Bill Kerrigan in his diary said, yeah, I beat the hell out of it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and one would have thought that that would have ended it, uh, which it temporarily did. But you could, I just try to imagine, could you imagine in this day and age of social media? Oh, where, that would be like just catnip for just every yeah, network, every streaming platform. My, my God, it'd be like, you know, it'd be like if, 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 you know, Bryce Harper went after JT Real Muto or. Well, I mean, that was a close, like, remember when he went after Papelbon yeah, or both yeah, of them went yeah. in uh, Washington? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, you know, basically. But that. Immediately, your teammates are jumping in. That this is the era of them being like they're settling this, yeah. And, yeah. and that was the thing that was just yeah. like, well, they. I yeah. mean, they settled it for at least <laughs> a time, but there was such a divide of this being like you're almost like with us or you're not, and which is yeah. such a for the era. You can almost see it, especially now. People are just like so much more professional. Now they're like, yeah, yeah, we show up and we play ball. I'm still gonna beat the shit out of you if if this escalates to that. Yeah, Ker- I, uh, Kerrigan had just finally had enough. And- I bet you Harry Hooper was like, you know what? I thought this was going to happen like three months ago. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> Yeah, but I, I'm just trying to imagine the guys in the locker room watching Speaker and Kerrigan go at each other. Now, you know, Bill was the catcher. He was like, uh, he was like 5'11", like 195 pounds. You know, he was not a small man. He was, you know, catchers are tough guys. Yep. And especially in that era. Like, you're taking yeah. a beating. Yeah, <laughs> like- and he just... Beat the everlasting crap out of Tris Speaker. It's like, he's our best player. Don't worry about it. Yep. Don't worry. Yeah. Exactly. Seriously, yeah. though. Yeah. Imagine if imagine if someone on the uh, if the the Angels catcher beat the hell out of Mike Trout or Shohei Otani. <laughs> yeah. You know they would deport him. He would he can't even be from America, and they would deport him. You know, but like, but the story the story really was actually kind of squelched both by the Boston press and by the National Baseball press at the time. But that was the era was, where the press were buddy-buddy and didn't want to reveal. shine. Yeah, they didn't want to shine that negative light or or be like, this team is in disarray. Men of their time. Yep. <laughs> yeah, to, to say the least. Um, well, somehow, somehow, they, you know, I don't know, and I, I couldn't, during the research, I couldn't, I, I didn't learn whether or not Tris continued the silent treatment with Kerrigan, Hooper, and Lewis into the 1912 season. But whatever had happened in 1911, it certainly was forgotten by 1912 because until 2018, the 1912 Red Sox was the greatest Red Sox team in history. As far as total wins? As far as total. They yeah. went 105, 47, and 2. That's amazing. And for those of you who are, who are asking, how can baseball have ties? You have to remember. No, no lights games. in the ballpark back yep. then. You know, games could be tied on account of darkness. <laughs> That's so crazy to think. But I mean, like, it's not only at the plate, like with Speaker, like Hooper that season, he had 34 extra base hits. And then Lewis drove in over 100 runs that year, I think. Well, and, and Larry Gardner, yeah. 24 doubles, 18 triples, three homers, 86 ribbies, a 315 batting average, uh, a, a, a 383 on base. And a 449 slugging And that percentage. man out-tripled Frank Thomas's career in <laughs> one season. But if if anything, when you when you look at but the, it's the pitching staff and uh, it's uh, the, uh, actually actually it wasn't just the pitching staff. When you look at that team, that team was absolutely complete both offensively and defensively. The 1912 Red Sox led led the American League in runs, doubles, homers, walks. They were first in on-base percentage, slugging percentage, OPS, and total bases. They were second in hits and fourth in triples, and they had the fourth fewest strikeouts. Now, pitching-wise, again, the most dominant team in the bigs at that time. Absolutely. Second in ERA, first in complete games, first in shutouts, first in runs, fewest runs, that is. They also gave up the fewest walks. They, had the, they, they gave up the second fewest hits, the second fewest earned runs, and they had the second most strikeouts. Boston starters won 102 of their 105 wins that year. I miss those baseball games where the starter goes all the way. <laughs> like yep. your, your arm's going to fall off. Don't worry about it. They had three 20 game winners that year, led by the ace of the staff, Smokey Joe Wood, who went 34 and 5 with a 191 ERA. That's amazing. 344 innings pitched. Now, who led, who led MLB this year in innings pitch, and what number was that? Because I think it was like around 220. That's what I mean. It doesn't even compare your pitching yeah. multiple games. Yeah. 
Yeah, Joe Wood led the league in ERA and shutouts and complete games. I mean, he had 35 complete games. I yeah. mean, you know, I don't even think there were 35. There might have been 35 complete games across all of baseball this year. I don't know. I don't even think it's that. I mean. Yeah, you're not wrong. It, yeah. it is such an yeah. anomaly nowadays. that. But th- this is the thing where Tom's right. You literally pitch until your arm falls off. And with this defense behind you though that's what makes the pitching so lethal they would talk after speaker goes about how much they enjoyed having him as far as how they set up hitters too here's the scary thing that team era in 1912 was 2.76 the guy who had the worst era on the team was charlie hall and his era was 3.02 that gets you paid hundreds of millions of dollars now yep yeah (laughs) but uh We're talking about the World Series because this is pretty interesting. Buck O'Brien went twenty and thirteen that year, and Hugh Bedian went twenty and nine, and Ray Collins went thirteen and eight. Uh, uh, But all five of those guys, they were just absolutely dominant the whole year, and they won the pennant over the Senators by fourteen games, and they won and over the 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 defending champions A's by fifteen. And that gets us to the uh, to the nineteen twelve World Series. And who are they playing? They're playing John McGraw's (laughs) New York Giants. Which is a there, there little is, bit of a little bit of just desserts revenge here. Now, to be fair, this was the third consecutive World Series appearance for the Giants. They had lost in 1910 and 1911 to, uh, uh, Philadelphia. to, to Philadelphia. Yeah. Now, here's a, another little interesting side note and spider for baseball, web for, for baseball history. There are only two teams in Major League Baseball history that lost three consecutive World Series: the New York Giants from 1911 to 1912, and the Detroit Tigers. 1907 to 1909. Oh. So you know, they were yeah, so, all in a row. Yeah, that's row. right. That's interesting. All in a row. Yeah. Yeah. You lost to the Cubs twice, Tigers. What are you doing? And, uh, and uh, in the, the famous 1909 yeah, series, the Cobb Wagner versus one. Wagner, yeah. Yeah. The, 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 the battle of, of what was regarded as the two greatest baseball players at the time. Now, the 1912 World Series, uh, uh, at the time, by the time it complete, was completed, and for years after, it was regarded by fans and sports writers alike as maybe the greatest World Series ever played. I mean, it was a it, it was a who's who of studs on on both teams. Now, in the first in the first in the opening game, Smokey Joe Wood took uh, t- uh, faced Jeff Trezow. The Sox won four to three. Uh, uh, Hooper had a game tying double in the seventh inning. Yet. Uh, speaker let off the let off the uh, speaker had a triple that fell in between Snodgrass and Devore, and then he scored on a single by Duffy Lewis in the sixth. Uh, uh, they scored three on a, on a hit on a two-run single by Steve Yerkes. Joe Wood actually set a major league record at the time with 11 Ks in a World Series game. You know, to their like, you know, that's back then in the dead ball era. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because guys, we got what were we talking about in our Wainer episodes? Guys weren't striking out. Like no. they were putting it. They were putting the ball on the ground and legging them out. That's right. Yeah, remember this. In, in Speaker's career, he struck out 220 times in 10,195 at bats. <laughs> yeah, his walk to strikeout ratio is yeah. freaking insane. insane. Yeah. yeah. Now, as we 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 re- just referenced the fact that. Parks didn't have lights back then. Yep. Yep. And so game two ended in a six to six tie. And Christy Mathewson must have been thinking to himself, man, what do I need to do to get a win? I always wondered why there were the number of games in this World Series that there were until I started doing this research. I'm like, yeah, was there was there a crazed fan that ran on the field in game? No, (laughs) it's 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 called the it's called the sun. In Game Three, Buck O'Brien outpitched Rube Marquard. Now, Rube actually has the record of most consecutive wins by a pitcher in a season. Uh, he won actually 19 games in a row at one point. Uh, oh wow! Yeah, uh, uh, O'Brien two one gave up seven hit. Actually, sorry, he lost. Actually, in Game Three, he lost. Rube Marquard actually threw a seven hitter. You know, fine pitching performance. Game Four, another fine pitching performance from Smokey Joe. Uh, uh, the Sox won three to one. Joe had a complete game, gave up only eight, hadn't had eight Ks. Now, game five, another – got to remember, this is the dead ball era. So that, that's if you're what I expecting, mean. If you're expecting 12, 11 games, you know, this is not the era for that. I miss steroids. <laughs> <laughs> but Hugh Betty Ant uh, uh, beat Christy, the great Christy Mathewson in a pitcher's duel, uh, uh, two to one. Betty Ant only gave up three hits. Mathewson, for his credit, he only gave up five. Uh, Hooper led off the game with a triple. Yerkes followed with a triple, and the speaker reached by an era. And Betty Ant uh, pitched three hit complete game shutout. Is this the one where Speaker caught the ball in his hat? Uh, yes, actually. <laughs> Paul <yeah>. O'Neill. <laughs> 
Well, they said it was like one of the best yeah. uh, World Series, definitely for like obviously for the time. But like they looked back on it and they're like, oh yeah, he barehanded, he barehand grabbed a ball going to the outfield. Like, it's not like it, it's such a ridiculous thing to like think about, and you're like, oh yeah, that sounds like one of the best players of all time. And that and that pitch was actually crushed. Oh yeah, because, That's, because that was when that was when center at Fenway was just you know way out there. You know, it's Martha's still Va- way out there. But I can't Vineyard. even believe what the yeah. Now Rube Marquard pitched Game Six. Now this is now this is the interesting thing about Game Five. Jake Stahl, the Red Sox manager and first baseman, he was the player manager. He wanted to pitch Smokey Joe Wood. The own McAleer ordered him not to pitch Smokey Joe, and the Red Sox players are like, "What the hell?" Now gambling. We don't know for sure, oh. but but there 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 were allegations that McAleer had bet on the Giants, and that's why he he didn't want Smokey Joe Wood pitching. I mean, if there's any arrow where these allegations have any weight, it's I'm not not that they're true or anything, but why would you not pitch Smokey Joe Wood in the World Series when he's not hurt? Yeah, well, as a res- as a result, Buck O'Brien, who who ended up pitching that game, well, he you know he lost, and that night on the on the train ride back to Boston, Smokey Joe Wood's brother beat the hell out of him. Now, to be fair to for o- losing the game. Now, to be fair to O'Brien, <laughs> McAleer did not tell Stahl to tell O'Brien that he was going to pitch. The next day. Oh, no. So that night, Bucky went out and got absolutely wasted. Oh, yeah, sure. he was still hung over by the time of first pitch. That's why Smokey Joe Wood's brother, Paul, beat the hell out of him on the train. I'm trying to imagine that. So he just did. But you know what, Dave? When you play in Major League Baseball, you need to be a fucking professional, Chris. That's true. You need to be ready every day. That's this podcast motto. Yep. Professional. Now, because of what had happened... In 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 both game five and in game two, because the Reds all of a sudden the team the, the players on both teams learned that they were not going to be able to get a a share of the gate from game two, the tie game. Oh yeah. Well, there's there was an allegation made that Red Sox players bet on the Giants to win game six, which was remember it's actually game seven because of the tie, and the Red Sox got. Tater got Smokey Joe gave just got crushed in that game. The Giants scored uh, well, you five in the first. Push it to an extra game so you can. T- no, yep. I mean if it's like, uh, and we'll discuss in a couple uh, Harry Hooper's role in the I believe eighteen World Series where yeah uh, we'll get it. Now, I'm sorry that my now, mind's getting ahead of me here. Now Speaker in in Game Seven did have an unassisted double play in center field in that game, which was you know probably the only highlight for the Red Sox. They lost eleven to four. I mean the Giants just beat them up. Uh, they they had they raked sixteen hits. Boston oh. had nine. So now we're uh, now we're down to, 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 to game seven, game eight, game eight, yeah. which is which is at Fenway Park. Now this is an incredible just. They this is this is the Harry. Yeah. You can call it the Harry Hooper game if you want to. Ah, you can. You and can, then speaker, but I mean Hooper in and, this game and, comes back. And, yeah, but and Olaf Hendrickson game. Yes, oh, yes. That, that that silly Viking. Oh, yes. that Swede. Now, <laughs> now they literally just like they just like they did in 1978 when the Yankees and the Red Sox tied for uh, for for uh, the AL East lead after Game 162. They flipped the coin to determine where the game would be played. Sox won, so they they played it. In yeah, Fenway. They played the polo But they grounds. didn't have enough time to actually advertise for the game, and so Fenway was only half full. Go figure on that. One, one. of the best games yeah. ever. One of the That's best games ever. Yeah, yeah, one of the best games ever. Now. The, uh, uh, the, the Giants had taken the lead, and in the eighth inning, Stahl uh, uh, pinch hits uh, for, for Betty, and he puts in Olaf yeah. Hendrickson. Hendrickson had a, had a key signal off, off Christy Mathewson, and ultimately he came around to score. Now the game is tied uh, uh, at one, and to replace, uh, to relieve Betty, and he brought in who? Smokey Joe Wood. Now it's kind of like it's kind of like you know uh, uh, game six and seven of the two thousand one World Series. Randy Johnson, except Randy won oh, game yeah. six, yeah. Where, where, whereas Wood lost. Now in the tenth inning, the Giants scored to take the lead two to one. Now uh, uh, Stahl, in a brilliant managerial move, pinch hit for Wood with Cliff Angle. Mm-hmm. Now this became one of the most famous plays in the first half of the twentieth century in baseball lore. He hits a towering fly ball to center field, and Fred Snodgrass, who by all accounts was a really, really good center fielder. Like reliable. That was yeah. what I kept reading about. Yeah. Him. He loses it, and ball drops, and Angle ends up on second. Now Harry Hooper comes out. Sack fly. 
But apparently it was an amazing catch by Snodgrass. Yeah, no, Snodgrass, Snodgrass made like a play arguably that Hooper made in the fifth inning yeah. earlier in the game yeah. where it was just an amazing – but because of it, advances to third base and you have first and second base open. Yep. Then Steve Yerkes walks. Now up comes Tris Speaker. Now uh, – this, uh, this is like 85 World Series yeah. with the or ball 80, lost. 80, or 86. 86, uh, that too, yeah. yes. Speaker hits a pop foul. Now – Christy Mathewson, Fred Myers, the catcher, and, uh, Fred, Merkel. and Fred Merkel, the first baseman, they all are rushing for the ball. And Mathewson wants, wants uh, uh, Merkel to catch it, even though Myers, the catcher, was actually closer. Now, none of them got the ball. It, it was kind of like a you know, Keystone Cops. It, it was like oh, Major yeah, League yeah. when the ball yeah, drops yeah. in right. the montage, yeah. you know? Yeah, exactly, like, exactly. <laughs> oh, <laughs> shit. Now, Speaker the whole time thinks, I'm out. When he realizes that he's got a second chance, he points to Matthewson and he says, well, you just called for the wrong man and it's going to cost you the ball game. It's the Mike Lowell Bartman thing. Let's make this asshole famous. Oh, like, that's so good. Speaker single to tie the game. Yerkes went to third. Uh, Matthewson intentionally walked Duffy Lewis. To get the double play, yeah. Yep, to, to set up a double play. Yep. Larry Gardner came up, hit a deep fly to right field. The uh, uh, Yerkes scores. The Sox win. It is the only. Yeah, I was waiting for it. It is the only World Series to end on a sacrifice fly. The only one. Uh, now the funny, the 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 winner share of that World Series four thousand and twenty five bucks. The losers got twenty five hundred and sixty six. Snodgrass's error was called by the New York pr- Press. The thirty thousand dollar muff, which was the difference between the winners and the losers share. Oh, yeah. Wow. Uh, the legacy, Christy Mathewson went, and, and, you, and for those of you who don't know who Christy Mathewson is, if you're a baseball fan, you should, because he is third all-time in wins. Well, tied 373 wins. I yeah. mean, come on. Yeah, he also posted the, the third highest single-season win total in the, in the modern era at 37 wins. He, had a, he posted a .094 ERA that World Series. He went 0-2 with one no decision. Smokey Joe Wood went 3-1. One of them in relief because he's they pick him up. Yeah, it was the first time in World Series play uh, that the World Series was won in the last inning. It was the first time a team was one inning away from losing the series and came back to win. That did not happen again until Game Six of the '85 World Series when the Royals, who actually should have lost, won the game because Dick Denkinger totally blew the call. Oh yeah, Denkinger with the yep. yep. And that World Series, up to that point, set an attendance record. So, uh, but war in Europe hasn't happened. Baseball's on the rise, Dave, in America. That's right. You know, and uh, uh, you know that that was the second World Championship for Boston. Speaker had a went, you know, hit three hundred for the World Series. You know, Smokey Joe, who again he had a, a sub two ERA that year, but mm-hmm. in the World Series he had a four point five ERA. Uh, but again, kind of inflated by uh, by that one by game. that one loss. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> but still. That's, I mean, that's the sec- I mean, the second world championship, and there's still more to come. And I feel like we're going to get to that in our next episode, right, Chris? That's right. We're coming back for part two of this uh, golden outfield and the Boston Red Sox. Dave's going to join us, and uh, yeah, come back t- with us for our next episode. I hope you're enjoying the history lesson, folks. <laughs>